Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that the land that we are here on is Wujak Bujards, Wujak land. They are the traditional custodians of this area. So we want to pay our respects to their elders, past and present. All right, should we start a podcast? Yeah, let's do that. Look at me. Welcome everyone to hi, hi <laughs> to your uh, f- new favorite weekly podcast uh, <laughs> where Charlotte and Jethro. It's not that new. This is our number three or four. Four, four. I know we're a month in. Uh, yes, your weekly podcast where we discuss all things swing, some things not swing, and usually have something to say that is contrary to the other. <laughs> to each other. Like, we, yeah, we yeah. Just, we just like arguing. Well, Conversing. Liking. It's and... engaging. You get it. So, um, Charlotte, how nervous are you about this one? I was going to ask you the same question. On a scale of one to so nervous, I'm probably around 15. <laughs> <laughs> because I am I am very uncomfortable, but that's a good thing. Um yeah. Uh why why are how uncomfortable are you, Jethro? I I am certainly uncomfortable. Excellent. Like, well, this is the most prepared the most people have ever been for one of these podcasts because mm. it is an important issue, right? It is an important like, issue. So what is the issue for today? Um so yeah, as you may have guessed, this podcast is gonna be quite different to the rest of the ones we've done. We've gotten rid of all of our regular segments, and we're going to spend the entire time dedicated to talking about one thing. Um, that means that there's no quiz. Yeah, well, there, there's no response to the quiz, so if you're hanging out for the response, you're going to have to hang out one more week, Come or just week. Google it, because surely it can't be that hard to find. Um, yeah, well, we're not experts. We have very little experience, um, but we think it's still super important to um, talk about this kind of thing. Have we said what we're talking about? Not yet. Oh, okay, it's just, cool. It's, it's, it's coming. Build, build. Oh, okay, 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 we're building. It's, okay, get, get, you go. We want, we've, we've done as much research as we can to make sure that we are respectful as possible. However, if anything that we say is disrespectful or hurtful to you, please, please, please get in touch with us and let us know so that we can remove this. Just email us at info at swingzing.com. We can go to the website. We've got a contact page. Uh, you can just scroll down to a contact form. You can fill it out and not even enter a name or an email address. You can do a completely anonymous um, report if you wanted to send us anything. Hmm. Um, you can see from the title of the podcast, they, they know what we're talking about. They've read the title. Oh, that's true. Yeah. We've decided to chat about the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, usually, uh, these podcasts are kind of a bit jovial, mm. a bit, uh, kind of what we a bit do. funny, kind of a bit... Uh, we don't take things too seriously. Um, and that's kind of... Well, one, it's a bit of, it's a, bit of a defensive mechanism. Yes. Um, so I, uh, I, I very much <laughs> would like to put my hand up here. And if at any point in the podcast I crack a joke that might seem... Um, that the timing is not right or that it is inappropriate, please understand that um, it is very likely because I'm highly in- uncomfortable at that moment and it is how I um, deflect attention. So um, I apologize in advance. I there's also something to be said about um, being more lighthearted and almost like saying jokes just to bring people's walls down. Yeah. So comedians do it all the time. They'll bring your walls down mm. and then they'll say a really important fact and it kind of just gets sunk in a bit deeper because they've got that 
I know. Rapport with you already. That's why the best comedians are usually very, usually quite knowledgeable and mm. intelligent people because it's a it's a very good communicating communicating way. So we we don't mean to take this issue lightheartedly. That's um, something that we're going to like. We're probably going to be pretty somber throughout this. Like yeah. we're taking this one pretty seriously. Mm. But I just wanted to want, just wanted to get that out there in case something does happen mm. and we put ourselves laughing for some reason. Just nerves. Yeah. Um, we're also very tempted not to have this podcast. Mm. We're tempted just to not have it completely, to make more space for black voices, or even just to jump on and do a 30-second podcast to say, hi, go and listen to this podcast and that thing and watch this video. Because the reality is our opinions don't matter. <laughs> well, we, isn't you and I's. <laughs> we, we need to listen and promote that black voices, right? Exactly. Like that, that's kind of the the motto that's going around at the moment. So that's what we want to do. We know in the end, though, that humans are fallible. If we end the podcast now and tell you to go and listen to this thing, some of you might go and do that. Some of you would actually go and put that extra effort in. But a lot of you won't. Mm. It's an uncomfortable and upsetting and challenging topic. But you've already pushed play on this podcast. Hopefully you haven't pushed stop yet. <laughs> Fingers crossed. And maybe their voices can be heard here. Mm. We've got stories from black people about why the Black Lives Matter, what about what the Black Lives Matter movement is and how it's relevant in the swing dance community. We've also got stories from the American Civil Rights Movement, uh, uh, what's happening in the USA, and also about how it's important here in Australia, addressing racism to indigenous, indigenous cultures here too. Let's get into it. The first story we've got is from a gentleman named Daryl Davis. Now, a side point, he's actually a boogie-woogie musician. Ooh. He plays amazing piano. Uh, he's, he plays for who was it? Chuck Berry, mm. who's in his band. He just, he just shreds. He plays a lot of blues and R&B, but he's also a boogie-woogie pianist. So he's, he's just amazing anyway. He's an African-American musician. Um, and as a child, he uh, was a victim of racism. So at 10 years old, he had to go to his mum and dad and be like, why, why was this? What's going on? Mm. And they explained racism to him and he just literally did not believe him um, to the point where he, he asked himself, how can people hate him who don't even know him? So he had this question in his mind that he went out to go and find answers to, but he couldn't. He, he looked everywhere, even into adulthood. He was asking everyone. Nothing came. So eventually he got round to setting up a meeting with a leader of the KKK. And so I think I'll let Daryl tell this story. Mary and I got there early, right on time to the minute there was a knock on the door. Mary hops up and runs around the corner, opens the door. In walks Mr. Kelly and his bodyguard. The bodyguard was armed with a sidearm right here on his hip. When they saw me, they just kind of like froze because you know, they were expecting a white guy. And I stood up and went like this to show I had nothing in my hands. And I approached. I said, hi, Mr. Kelly. I'm Daryl Davis. He shook my hand. The bodyguard shook my hand. I said, come on and come on and have a seat. Have a seat. Mr. Kelly sat down. And the bodyguard stood at attention to his right. And we conversed, agreed on some things, disagreed on other things. But he let me know. He let me know that I was not his equal. I was inferior, he was superior. And this was justified and determined by the color of my skin. I wasn't there to fight him, I was there to learn from him. Where does this ideology come from? Because once you learn where it comes from, you can then try to figure out how to address it and see where it's going. 
So we continued conversing, maybe about a little over an hour into this interview, there's kind of a strange noise in the room, kind of a and we all jumped. And I popped up out of my seat to the table between us. And I was ready to come across that table and take down Mr. Kelly and the bodyguard because I knew that Mr. Kelly had made that noise. I didn't know what that noise was. I could not discern it. And I kept hearing the voice of the person who gave me his phone number saying, Daryl, do not fool with Roger Kelly. He will kill you. I did not want to die that day. But I knew that he made the noise. And I'm trying to think, what did I just do? What did I just say to cause him to make some kind of weird noise? And when I came up out of my seat, I was looking right into Mr. Kelly's eyes. I didn't say a word, but my eyes were speaking loud and clear. In fact, my eyes were shouting so loud he could hear my eyes. My eyes were saying to him, what did you just do? Well, Mr. Kelly's eyes had fixated upon mine, and his eyes were silently asking me the same question. Where the bodyguard had his hand on his gun, looking back and forth between, between the clan leader and me, like, what did either one of y'all just do? Well, Mary, she realized what happened. She had filled the uh, hotel room ice bucket with ice and put some cans of soda in there to get them cold to be hospitable and offer Mr. Kelly a beverage. The ice had melted and the cans came cascading down the ice. And then it made that same noise. And we all began laughing at how ignorant we all had been. Now, I won't say this was a learning moment, but it was definitely a teaching moment. And what was taught was this, all because some foreign, and underscore, highlight, circle the word foreign, entity of which we were ignorant, being the bucket of ice in Kansas soda, entered into our little comfort zone via the noise that it made, we all became fearful and accusatory of one another. Thus, ignorance breeds fear. We fear those things we do not understand. If we do not keep that fear in check, that fear in turn will breed hatred because we hate those things that frighten us. If we do not keep that hatred in check, that hatred in turn will breed destruction. We want to destroy those things that we hate. Why? Because they cause us to be afraid. But guess what? They may have been harmless and we were just it. Is that the end of that clip? Yep. Okay. Um, not sure why it cut off so weirdly. I must have edited it a bit poorly. Um, so that is an excerpt from, um, yeah, Daryl Davis telling the story at TEDx in Naperville. Three months after a white supremacist got in his car and drove into a group of people killing Heather Heyer in Charlottesville. So this is two years ago. Daryl's telling the story. He does continue, and he starts inviting Roger Kelly, the clan leader, to his house for dinner to keep this conversation going. After years of this, Kelly starts inviting this black man, Davis, to his own house for dinner, and even to clan rallies. CNN got wind of this, and they came to do a story, uh, and during the story they recorded Kelly say that he still believes in the separation of races, that Davis still had not changed his views on the Klan. But in the same report, this Klan leader does say at a Klan rally, 
We don't agree with everything, but at least he respects me to sit down and listen to me, and I respect him to sit down and listen to him. So we do want to finish this off with one more piece. This is how Davis end, ended that um, TED talk, the, the story that he was telling the set. So I'll let Davis finish the story off. Respect is the key. Sitting down and talking, not necessarily agreeing, but respecting each other to air their points of view. Because of that respect and my willingness to listen and his willingness to listen to me, he ended up leaving the clan and there's his robe right there. I am a musician, not a psychologist or sociologist. If I can do that, anybody in here can do that. Take the time to sit down and talk with your adversaries. You will learn something and they will learn something from you. When two enemies are talking, they're not fighting. They're talking. It's when the talking ceases that the ground becomes fertile for violence. So keep the conversation going. Thank you all very much. So the reason we wanted to play this... Oh, do you have a comment? You no, I was just okay. going to say that it's it's incredibly courageous to, as, as a black man, to just like, I'm going to reach out to the Imperial Wizard of the KKK. That's huge. I just, yeah. Yeah, it's a bit of a nut story. He's, he's an amazing man by the mm. sounds of it. Um, yeah, so the reason we wanted to play that story first um, is just to outline um, his message of that ignorance is dangerous. So if we can educate ourselves, mm. like listening to a podcast mm. by two swing dancers trying to promote black voices, mm. maybe yeah. we can be less I ignorant. Mean, at, yeah, at the very least, it's a conversation or it's a, an, an invitation to ask questions and an invitation to educate yourself and ourselves, obviously. Hmm. All right. Um, so we've got next here. We're, we are being asked to listen. So let's listen. There are first-hand stories out there. We'll play some of them for you soon. Um, there are also online seminars. So I just wanted to mention Ospire hosting Aboriginal cultural awareness and understanding workshops, um, which we'll have links in the show notes if you wanted to see what they were. Uh, there's also people around us in your neighborhoods or at work or in public that can share with us a lifetime of experiences of the world through their eyes. So like you're saying, conversations. Mm. Um, and listening like I don't know it's kind of a weird thing everyone thinks that they're already listening to everyone around them but, but mm. are we really what does it actually mean to listen to to black lives absolutely and there's there's a slew of online resources um, and yeah. just start by asking the question um, there's book clubs, there's Spotify playlists, there's, there's a mm. countless number of resources available to you to be, and to us, um, to be able to delve a bit more deeper in this. Um, I think the next thing we probably should do is, Charlotte, I wanted to ask you why, what is the connection between swing dancing and this upheaval that's happening in America right now? Right, well, I guess... So as most of us would probably know, the swing movement um, came about in the late 1930s, early 40s in Harlem, um, in New York. Harlem was a predominantly uh, black neighborhood, although ironically owned, a lot of the businesses um, were owned by white people, but it's it's where it was coined the Harlem Renaissance. So there was a lot of musicians, there were a lot of artists, there was a lot of ha things happening in the African-American community um, there. 
least of which, or not least of which, uh, sorry, was um, swing music. So all of the musicians, um, and then shortly after the swing dancing, so obviously our beloved Lindy Hop. Um, and you have to remember that this was all during a time of... You know, Jim Crow laws um, of it was just after World War One, during the Great Depression, on the way to World War Two. So it was not by any stretch, you know, a happy time. Um, but this this music and this dance was a sort of a common point where everyone could sort of get along and and express some joy and energy, I guess. Um, and Jim Crow laws, if you're not familiar with them, which is a series of laws um, enacted in the United States at that time, which basically had to do with the segregation of the uh, African-American community and the white community. So things like um, interracial marriage, things like um, separation of public spaces and businesses, um, things that prevented black men um, from voting. Women were not even a consideration at that point, um, but black men from voting. Um, so that was, that whole series of laws was, are referred to as the Jim Crow laws. Now, why is this, uh, relevant? Because one of the few places that it turns out, um, where those, I guess, were left at the door was the Savoy Ballroom. So the Savoy Ballroom became an iconic place where you had amazing big bands and you had all the dancers went out there to hang out and it was a non-segregated space. Um, which means that, you know, it, it didn't matter, you know, what, what your race was. You just went there to enjoy the music, to dance, um, or to play. Um, it was really quite revolutionary at that time to have a space available. Um, there, one of the things that brought Lindy Hop to, to light or to not necessarily the world stage because there was not that much sharing at that time. Um, but definitely in the eyes of the greater public was the, uh, Harvest Moon Bowl, so some have argued that the Harvest Moon Bowl um, initially was a dance competition which only had four dance styles to be included. So that was the tango, the waltz, the foxtrot, and the rumba. Um, but in 1935, a couple of months before the bowl, there were the Harlem riots. So um, I found a, a very brief but very reductive, please bear that in mind, summary of um, the riots, which is, quote, an unfortunate series of coincidences brought about by a misunderstanding. In reality, it was an exploded frustration of an oppressed community. Um, so it was a riot that counted some 4,000 people. Um, people died. Um, and Harlem as a neighborhood um, went through quite a lot of destruction and damage. And as a... Not necessarily a gesture of goodwill, but as um, Norma Miller said, um, the addition of Lindy Hop to the contest was something that was intended to raise the morale of the neighborhood as well as get business back into that uh, into the Harlem um, area um, after the riots. Um, so the ball was held, like I said, in March uh, 1935, um, and first time Lindy Hop was brought to the greater stage, and it exploded in popularity. It was a televised event, which was exceedingly rare at the time, um, and all of a sudden you had, you know, this dance that, even though it was hugely popular, we have to remember, obviously, you know, the internet and television was not easily accessible. Well, the internet not at all, but television was not easily accessible at all. Very difficult to access internet. Yeah, that, that dial-up was... It's pretty slow. So slow. Um, but yeah, so I mean, although everyone in Harlem, obviously, and maybe the surrounding suburbs were familiar with this dance, if you were halfway across the country, you maybe hadn't seen anything like that before. Um, and all of a sudden, Lindy Hop was just brought into the world stage. Um, so 
why does this matter, you ask? What what was the relevance? To put it simply, the, the dance that we all have, this immense privilege and pleasure of dancing would not exist if it weren't for the African-American community and musicians of Harlem. Um, and a failure to acknowledge that, as well as the fact that they were able to do so during a time of unimaginable oppression, is just disrespectful and appropriative. So we should all, we don't necessarily need to spend the rest of our lives studying the history of it. But taking a moment to acknowledge it, to understand a little bit about it, and to ask questions is definitely important. So, yeah. Yeah, respect the dancing where it came from. Exactly. Yeah. Um, because we are very privileged to be able to continue dancing it. Hmm. On that note... Yes. Um, I was going to have a quick... Uh, chat about well not quick chat a quick introduction to one of the more famous um speeches speeches Mm. ever type thing this is the i have a dream speech that i actually hadn't heard most of until doing all this research i think i heard the whole thing when i was maybe in when i was like 10 and truth be told i probably haven't listened to the whole thing since yeah like it's it's been a long long time it's it's super powerful i want to play that for you uh, but just to give everyone a bit of background um this is in the 60s, obviously. Um, the American Civil Rights. This is the segreda- segregation causing a whole bunch of issues, to put it lightly. Very lightly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and a bunch of African American, really strong African American leaders started. Um, well, I mean, a lot of them came from the church. They started preaching a whole bunch mm. of equal rights. Um, uh, I don't know what you call Stances it. Stances or... Yeah, they had a whole bunch of rallies and they said a bunch of really amazing progressive stuff. Progressive as in like... It wasn't common... It was it wasn't commonly said out loud at yeah. the time for someone to stand up and say like, hang on a minute, we, I should have the same rights as you even though we are different... We have different amounts of melanin in our skin. You know, that was... What do you mean? Because it, it was hardly considered a person... Yeah. More so property, even though technically slavery wasn't a thing. It was only a technicality, really. Yeah. yeah. That, that's enough for it. We, we, we all know the detail. Like, just, just play the speech, I think. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, 
The life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. One hundred years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. goosebumps yeah it's pretty powerful stuff <laughs> yeah considering how much we floundered the in the, the intro yeah <laughs> sorry about that we'll take that one um, on the chin um, um yeah so that was obviously martin luther king jr um and one of the biggest and i guess successful movements in mm. black rights they were able to um Hang on, I've got something written here. Uh, the early history of the civil rights movement in the United States showing how brutal police treatment of civil rights demonstrators in Birmingham, Alabama forced President Kennedy to send a strong civil rights bill to Congress in June of 1963. The various legislative strategies used to get the Civil Rights Act in 1946 through Congress are detailed. That's just, you know, a quick abstract mm. um, of an entire book. If you wanted to learn <laughs> about Again, how it all happened, well, but sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the, the things like that managed to get mm. bills passed. And we have to remember this was as inspiring and as amazing the speech is. Um, it does sort of paint a picture of rallies, kind of how we would see them today. Of not always, but predominantly peaceful and. Um, not flowy that's not the word I'm looking for but you know um, 
Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. I, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, the speech gives it for me at least gives this imagery of motivation and all these people rising together and being as one. Um, but they were incredibly violent. Um, not from the rallyers' perspective, but they were being beaten. They were being torn down. They were just being attacked from left, right, and center. Um, so I just think it's an important um, thing to remember as you listen to such an uplifting and cal- it's a very calming speech, even though the, the source material is very enraging. Um, it, there's something about the timbre of his voice and the way that he delivers the speech that just brings you to the sense of calm. It's like, I believe that dream too. Let's get there together. Meanwhile, you know, horrible things happening. So, yeah, and they would, um, the stories I've heard have been they would walk down the streets to the protest in their Sunday best. So they were mm. dressed up in suit and ties and they would kneel down and pray. Like you say, mm. all their protests... Well, not all of their protests. I'm sure there were some outliers, but mm. they did want to have peaceful protests. They wanted to have conversations. They got in and talked with people and broke bread with politicians so that, yeah, they could get this um, bill sent to Congress. Um, shall we move into Black Lives Matter today? Yes. So Black Lives Matter, uh, in the sense that we all know it, in 2013, uh, the hashtag Black Lives Matter was used uh, on a post responding to the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's murderer, George Zimmerman. Uh, the people who kind of started it, the co-founders, uh, Patrice, Alicia, and Opal, uh, they had a few different ways to go about it. Mm-hmm. I think we'll just play that, play that next clip from them, just so you can hear it from their voice. This is Patrice. It's time that we actually hold our governments and our systems accountable for killing us, for um, creating environments where we can't be in our optimal health. I grew up thinking that being poor was my fault and my mother's fault. That because my mother was a single mom, it was her fault that we were sometimes unable to eat. And that's on purpose. It's on purpose that people who are most marginalized, people who are um, poor, who are mostly impacted by state violence, I think that being killed by a cop is our fault. They tell us that, right? We have a crisis of divesting from poor communities, black communities in particular, and reinvesting um, into these communities with police, jails, courts, prisons. What we've seen over the last four years has been a deep resurrection of the civil and human rights movement in this country. The 60s, they didn't have social media. Um, They didn't have a militarized police force. Um, They didn't have a prison industry that was 2.3 million people. They're dealing with different circumstances. Racism is still the same. Capitalism is still the same. Sexism is still the same. And so what we've seen is the birth of a racial justice movement. interrupted the speech and he wasn't able to, to talk. Do you apologize to black people for mass incarceration? Well, can I talk? I do not think that black people and um, other um, marginalized communities have an obligation to 
the Democratic Party. In fact, I think we have an obligation to what's going to save our lives. We have an obligation to challenging neoliberalism. And I think what has often happened with the Democratic Party, uh, that party has chosen corporations over uh, humanity. And uh, while I often still vote Democrat, both parties for us had been parties that had historically um, been uh, unhelpful to black communities. Snipers opening fire in downtown Dallas during a rally against the fatal police shootings of black men in Louisiana and in Minnesota in recent days. The snipers hit 11 police officers, at least five of whom are now dead. The killing of the Dallas officers becomes a really pivotal moment for Black Lives Matter. It's really the moment where our organization is launched and to be called a terrorist organization. You are not a fan of that movement? Not at all. It's uh, a destructive movement, in my opinion. Michael Johnson was really clear that he wasn't a part of a movement, that he did this on his own terms. When we were, as Black Lives Matter, very clear that our movement was about peace, nonviolence. In fact, we were calling out law enforcement that was killing us. And so we were saying we actually need a peaceful country. You're going to hear it once. All lives matter. Many people who've said all lives matter really have meant white lives matter. We started to hear presidential candidates, right, on one side say black lives matter because they were forced to really contend with that. Yes, they do. And I'm going to talk a lot about that in a minute. And the other side buckled down and continue to say all lives matter. The anti-Roy Moore campaign was huge for us. Black women um, voted against Roy Moore, not because they necessarily wanted the other guy. Uh, they voted against Roy Moore because they knew that would be better for the people of Alabama and, to be frank, better for the rest of the country. And I think we could do it again in 2020. Whenever people are not getting the things that they deserve, and we can see this across the world, look at Egypt, people are going to rise up. You can only um, put your the boot on someone's neck for so long before they try to get it off their neck. And that was recorded before George Floyd. Yeah, I was just going to ask, when was that recorded? Because that was a year that's, ago. Wow, that's... Almost um, foreshadowing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that's that's um, one of the co-founders of the current Black Lives Matter organization, the the, the online social media movement, mm. which, as she says, has very different uh, resources and opposition to the civil rights movement but uh, after the same thing essentially yeah. and one of the key things I think that does differentiate it which um, you were mentioning um, to me before was it's the it's decentralized na- um, nature so the fact that it's not carried by one or two people um, yeah. and therefore their actions reverberate through the entire movement but it's rather a whole bunch of different people which means it can expand the inclusiveness of the movement to include, you know, trans lives and queer lives and women and, and all lives um, that fall within that category. Yeah, they were very clear, the three women that organized it, that they wanted it to be intersectional. Mm. They wanted it to be across all the different um, issues and discriminations that happen. Mm, all the minority groups and all the disenfranchised uh, groups. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'd say all. I can't say to that effect. Mm. But Black Women Lives Matter is yeah. a thing that I've heard, seen them post about. Mm. And so they they try to do more than just 
the one, you know, straight black man mm. needs to be free. Everyone needs to. Um, so the next thing I wanted to have played was uh, Melina Abdul. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is just another piece about the American Black Lives Matter. Okay. Yeah, go for it. We have two primary demands. One, hold police accountable who kill and brutalize and harass and occupy our spaces and hurt our people. Um, And two, we want defunding of police. In the United States, all major cities spend about 50% of their city resources on police. And we know that what would keep communities safe is things like permanent housing, like health care, like after school programs and parks and libraries. So we want to, again, uh, uh, hold police accountable, prosecute police who kill our people, and two, defund police. And so that's that's their, uh, I guess, pathway Mm. to try to get this this equality back. Mm. Uh, I just wanted to point that out, that they have, those are the things they've set Mm. that they actually Their expectations. Want so to speak, to get there, and it's an interesting um, way of thinking about it. And I can see the defensiveness that would arise from a comment like "defund the police." But the argument is that if you attribute the funds to where they're actually needed, so like you're saying, community spaces to housing to healthcare, then the requirements of the police and the burden that the police have to bear is so much less because there is less crime, because there is less things that the police have to deal with. But instead of dealing consistently with the symptoms, let's go directly to the the root of the problem. The root of the problem is not violence. The root of the problem is what begets the violence, which is, you know, people when they have nothing to eat, when they have um, nowhere to stay, with all of these things. Um, So address that, and then the rest will flow on from there. And so that's the message from Black Lives Matter in the American sense, the decentralized um, organization. They have obviously reached Australian shores as well. Um, so there are Black, Live Matter, Black Lives Matter rallies here mm-hmm. for uh, the indigenous peoples of Australia mm. because there is... Uh, shocking racism here. It's insane the, the stats that you see here. Um, but one thing that were the, they have attempted here was the Uluru statement from the heart. Um, so we've got a piece here by Dean Perkin. He's from uh, the Kwam, sorry Kwandamuka people from Minjaraba. So he's just going to introduce the uh, what the statement of the heart. Statement from the heart is where it came from. This statement speaks to me because I was closely involved in its creation. My signature etched into its canvas as I knelt in the red soil of Mudajulu in the shadows of Uluru on the 26th of May, 2017. I remember that moment for many reasons. Seeing the wonder of the yellow-clad gumach and the blues and the greens of the Torres Strait dancers kicking up clouds of red on Anangu land. I remember the looks on people's faces, the quiet smiles, the camaraderie of people who only hours earlier had brought this statement to life. But most of all, I remember how exhausted I felt. 
in this moment of such importance to my peoples and my nation, I felt a tiredness in my bones and in my soul. I was utterly spent. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, there's something wrong. I should be feeling enthused and energised about what we'd just done. And then I reflected on everything that had happened to get to this point. I'd worked with the Referendum Council as it held 13 regional dialogues with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across the country. Led by Arnie Pat Anderson, Professor Megan Davis and Noel Pearson, it was the most comprehensive process ever to engage Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the hard business of constitutional and structural reform. My job was to capture the stories of more than 1,200 people as they gave their hearts and their minds to the dialogues. Standing at the front of the room at each of the dialogues, I could hear and feel the passion, the grief, the hope, the challenges and the ideas of people who had spent decades striving for change. I remember helping shape the agenda and co-facilitating the Uluru Convention. Sitting in my room the night before is all about to start thinking of all the work that we'd done up until that point was finally coming to a head knowing that more than 250 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were gathering nearby, preparing to do the hard work of reaching a consensus in the next three days, and I had absolutely no idea what that consensus would be. On the morning of the final day of the convention, Megan read the statement for the very first time. At that point, my emotions were just boiling inside of me. I felt an enormous pride in my people for the work that they'd already done I felt nervous for the reception. I didn't know what the reception to the statement might be. And I was just hanging on to every single word, feeling the tension just ripple through the room. So Megan finishes that reading and the response was more than 250 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people getting to their feet in a spontaneous standing ovation. I get goosebumps now just thinking about it. It was that real. It was an emphatic endorsement of this statement. This is truly a historic consensus and a compelling mandate for reform. Girls, that was Dean Parkin. He's again talking at a TED conference. This is a TEDx in Canberra. Um, so the next thing I actually wanted to do was to play the statement itself. So mm. we've got an audio here from Megan Davis, the one of the women that um, Dean just mentioned there, who was part of the part of the um, board that were getting it all um, organised. Here's Professor Megan Davis. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands, and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did, according to the reckoning of our culture from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial, and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion, the ancestral tie between the land or mother nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom remain attached thereto, 
and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished and coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. How could it be otherwise that peoples possessed a land for 60 millennia and this sacred link disappears from world history in merely the last 200 years? With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionally, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are aliened from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for the future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarata is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination to supervise a process of agreement making between governments and First Nations and truth telling about our history. In 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. And we invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. So there you go, the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Uh, so yeah, that was all put together in 2017. Mm. I was shocked when you said um, that that's how recent it was because I'd, I'd heard of it and I'd, I'd heard it before, um, but I for some reason I had remember it being 2007, which even then is way too late for that to have happened. Um, but yeah, 2017 is just a, is uh, yeah. ridiculously recent. I managed to get that convention together. Hmm. Um, so I've got another piece here from Dean Parkins, um, his talk at TED Talk. Just the, the way he finished up has a few, um, you know, Pointers. what can we do Yeah, type things. So let him speak. The invitation is here. This is our moment to decide what our legacy is going to be. Tell this story to others. Start a conversation 
about the shared promise about the promise of our shared identity. Express your support at ularuforall.com. Write to your MPs, both state and federal. They need your encouragement. Put a submission to the Joint Select Committee that is currently examining the voice to Parliament and tell them you want your voice heard in a referendum as soon as possible. Let's just get this done. Side by side, let us walk together in a movement of the Australian people. Let's just get this done. Yeah, here, here. So, yeah, uh, obviously they're calling for a referendum. They'd write to your MPs, send mm. all that good stuff out, and then hopefully we can get an amendment on the um, Constitution. And the next post that you're going to, or the next clip that you're going to play goes um, a bit further to that of, you know, what do we do? Right, yeah, yeah, I've got how, that clip in a second, yeah. Yeah, because um, I know, you know, practically, I'm like, what could I do? You know, as sometimes I think the complexity and the scale of the problem can be daunting but that doesn't mean that our responses need to be that size even doing something small but doing something consistent um is still something so even listening to this podcast or listening to researching all of these different um speakers and educating ourselves on these matters um, is is a start listening to imperial wizards at kkk rallies apparently I mean, don't, don't believe them. Like, don't listen. To no, them I was going to say, I'm like, I feel like we need to add context to that. Yeah, of, yeah. Um, you know, invite them for a conversation. Yes. Um, don't necessarily go there and support their rallies. That that's definitely um, not where we should go. No. Um, so yeah, the the last thing I wanted to say was, you can hear that we have not even touched the surface of this. There are so many leads that we were not able to explore in this one podcast. We have assumed that you know about George Floyd. About Ahmed Aubrey in America, we assume that you know about the 432 Indigenous deaths here in Australian custody since the Royal Commission into the very problem. We assume you know what virtue signalling is and why it doesn't solve anything. And while the All Lives Matter slogan it might be true, it's it's just not the point. Hmm. So we we're hoping, because you already knew all that, we didn't want to dwell on that kind of stuff. We just wanted to get to kind of the meat of it and like we said at the start I wanted to give the black voices um, a place to, to be heard. But you can hear that there's lots of philosophies about how to get to this place of equality. Daryl Davis going into respecting and trying to converse. We've got the civil rights movement with peaceful protests, strong leaders working with governments to create legislation. We've got the current Black Lives Matter movement, decentralised and intersectional. Uh, and then you've got the Uluru Statement from the heart, which is trying to breed inclusivity and get constitutional change. As for the outro today, we're going to end this podcast not by me playing anything on my little Casio piano. Aww. <laughs> uh, this time we've got Ivory, um, who was just talking to her phone. She just put a post up on Instagram that um, was aimed at white people and what we can do to help. The full video was a bit too long to play here, um, but like all the other videos that we have played today, we will be adding all the links in the show notes 
So please feel free to go back through and read any of them or look at any of them. Um, but that's it from us. Yeah. Anything else you wanted to say before we play Ivalice? No, just thank you very much for listening. Um, please share um, the information and please ask others to speak before we speak ourselves. <laughs> All right, take it away, Ivalice. Um, it's not enough to donate. It's not enough to post Black Lives Matter. It's not enough to um, just be publicly with us and against racism if you haven't committed yourself to doing the actual work that it takes to change things. And so I'm going to give a couple tips that I think are extremely helpful and believe me when I tell you that I'm, I'm reading these messages. So the first thing I'm going to say is before you decide, okay, well, I'm going to get behind this cause, you really do have to self-reflect. That's the first thing. Self-reflect and ask yourself, if I'm just now realizing that I need to be an ally, right? Then what are the things that I have ignored? The things that I have assumed about people of color, the things that I have just let go and didn't say anything about, what are the parts of myself that have supported this? What are those parts? So that means uncovering and getting all in the nasty parts, like getting in the most uncomfortable parts of yourself and asking yourself, how have I supported this? Is there something that I, you know, that I think that's un untrue? Where did it come from? This is the kind of work that usually it takes years to do, but it's the first thing you have to do before deciding I'm going to be an ally, you know, and just posting about it. I think the next thing that has to be done is committing yourself to being the very vocal white friend, no matter what that means. That means if you're with a group of your friends and that everybody's white and somebody says or does something that ain't right, don't be afraid to be the person that calls it out. You've got to create a new identity for yourself. Like, you know what? Damn it, Uncle Tony, I'm not allowing you to be racist every time I see you. I don't care what it is because allowing that kind of thing is what keeps this going. Being quiet, thinking, oh God, they annoy me with their racism. Not saying a word is why this is still going on. It's so many people feeling like, well, you know, what can I do? And that person's just ignorant. Yeah, but you have a voice. You're in the middle of a crowd of white people, meaning that you can speak up. There's not a black person there to do it. Commit yourself to being that person, right? So yes, you can watch movies, you can read books, you can educate yourself. I recommend that you do that. I do. But I want you to know that it's not just what you're doing out there that's gonna make a difference. I had a person tell me that they felt uncomfortable speaking out against racism because they felt like they would be disrespectful to their friends and family and law enforcement. And I know that there are a lot of people who feel that way. It's important for you to understand that this fight is not against police. This fight is against racism. I really hope that people who have truly made a commitment and not just looking at it as a way to get likes on social media. The people who truly in their heart of hearts are like, damn, I didn't know, I didn't realize. Those people 
we need your voice. We need you. We need you to fight with us because we're tired. We are tired. We are literally beat down tired. We're, I'm tired of having to be in my car and thinking, making sure that I remember how to rehearse my lines if I get pulled over and how I will keep my hands on the wheel and not reach inside my purse to get my ID too quickly and be shot because they think I have a weapon. Understand, I'm not just, I'm not an activist. I am a coach. I am a person, a black woman who has experiences that you wouldn't believe. But so do your black friends. Talk to them. Ask them. Don't say, hey, is there anything I can do? Because now you're putting that burden on them. Talk to them about their experiences. Open it up. Open it up. Make it not uncomfortable. Make it normal for you to talk to your other white friends about what it is in this country that's causing black people to have this experience. God dang it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not trying to be the person who is like not understanding because I know there's a lot of people out there who are ignorant. It's not that they're racist, it's that they're ignorant. And so you, as a white person, it's not my job to check them. You check them. You get in there and be like, hold up. It's not all lives matter, bro. Sorry. Ugh. Come over here and let me have a talk with you. You do that. It's powerful. No matter how many people you get to, no matter how many people you know or affect or follow you on Instagram, this one little thing you say could change that person and it'll change the next person. I swear to God, I will go to my grave trying my very best to make sure that I don't have sons that are afraid to go jogging 